If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. sleepcoolnow.com 1212 This is our number 1 of the World According to Zig podcast for this September 10, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down and uh, just as I have been predicting for quite a while, this week the uh, the world turned further upside down, at least the world of politics as uh, President Donald Trump uh, did his Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, uh, becoming effectively a Democrat at least for this week. In our number 2, we're going to be joined by Democratic Congressman John Yarmuth to get his perspective on what it's like having a Democratic president now who nobody in the Democratic Party actually likes. So very much looking forward to our number 2 and hope you are as well. Before we get to all the Trump related news and we will do so and also talk a little about the hurricane and a whole bunch of other things. Before we do that, I want to talk about a little bit about what happened last week on the podcast and related to some news that occurred this week. If you'd missed last week's podcast, make sure you check it out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Two fantastic guests, our number 2, uh, Jonathan Schreiber, who's the uh, head of Glenbeck's media company, the president of Glenbeck's media company with a very long, extensive and honest assessment of not only where Glenbeck's me- media empire is now that they've cut back about 25% of their workforce. but also the conservative media in general and uh, Glenn actually recommended that everybody in the conservative media in his in his email uh, take a listen to that particular podcast so if you haven't yet already I hope that you will because you'll learn a lot about the nature of what's going on in the conservative media and really how it relates to where we are politically and how we got Donald Trump and where we're going that's our number 2 from last week our number 3 from last week <laughs> this is this was interesting Uh, we spoke with the NFL uh, Hall of Famer, Pro Football Hall of Famer technically and uh, NFL legend Franco Harris of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Super Bowl MVP, four-time Super Bowl champion, Hall of Famer, icon of Pittsburgh. Anyway, uh he and I have gotten to know each other exceedingly well because of my work on the whole so-called Penn State scandal. He is a Penn State alum. and we we've spoken to him before actually he was the first guest on this podcast back in uh, January of this year and his interview was interesting on a couple of levels 
And I asked him at one point about Colin Kaepernick and the protests of the national anthem because of police abuse. And I happened to ask him what would happen if he or somebody on the Steelers back in his day in the 70s had uh, decided to pull what Colin Kaepernick was doing and what others are following in his footsteps and doing with not standing for the national anthem. And Franco said that in his day, mean Joe Green and Jack Lambert would have taken care of the whole thing. That's, I mean, that's a pretty fair assessment, the Reader's Digest version of what he said. Now, that was kind of funny, and, and uh, you know, to me it wasn't nearly the most important part of the interview. The most important part of the interview dealt with his attendance of the trial of the former Penn State president, Graham Spanier, and what a complete fraud that was. But the media has no interest in that because that wrecks their whole narrative that everyone at Penn State was covering up for Jerry Sandusky and it's the biggest scandal in the history of college and blah, 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 which is all just, you know, absurdity. It's just flat out. It's just flat out ridiculous. Yeah, and it's it's just worse than that, actually. All right, so, but that, that, I knew the media wouldn't pick up that part of the interview. So, as I was thinking about what he said, I realized, you know what? That mean Joe Green, Jack Lambert headline if done properly that's going to go places so what i do with this podcast is i i if the guest fits i send it to mediate where i write a column about three times a week i say uh, guys uh, you know this might work or you might want to consider this for a news story and about 90 percent of the time they'll do a news story on whatever guest i'm interviewing and I sent them that particular headline, NFL legend on Kaepernick protests. In my day, Joe Green and Jack Lambert would have taken care of the situation. I, I, that wasn't the exact verbiage, but something along those lines. Well, this thing goes bananas. Absolutely crazy. It not only get pick, pick, gets picked up everywhere uh, in Pennsylvania, but it gets picked up nationally. Uh, CBS Sports, but most hilariously, Fox News Channel picks it up because to Fox News Channel, this sounded like, you know, wow, a conservative position. The the players were going to take it on themselves to make sure that uh, in, in their day, no one sat for the national anthem. Now, this was particularly funny because Franco is a full-on liberal. Not just a little bit of a liberal, but, uh, you know, he was actually an elector for Barack Obama. In other words, he was part of the Electoral College. His vote was for Barack Obama and at least one of his two presidential elections as an elector from the state of Pennsylvania. He was a delegate for Hillary Clinton. He campaigned side by side with Hillary Clinton, not to much effect, (laughs) in Pennsylvania in the final days of the 2016 election. And so uh, it was rather funny to me that they were making him into a conservative hero, but I wasn't sure how Franco was going to react to this story being picked up as much as it was in his, in his large variety of news sources that it was. Cause Franco's not an attention whore. He really isn't. He doesn't care. I mean, he's, <laughs> you've lived his life and you got statues and whatever. He, he, he has no interest in creating controversy just to create controversy. So I was driving home from playing in a golf tournament this week, and Franco calls my cell phone, and I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. So I'm thinking, he must not be happy. There must be something that uh, he's not particularly thrilled about with the way that this uh, interview is being portrayed in the media. Well, long story short, 
Sure, true enough with Franco. He was perfectly fine with everything. He wanted to call to say how hilarious it was that Fox News Channel was turning him into a conservative hero. <laughs> Liberal Franco Harris, that he thought that this was the greatest thing ever, that all his friends are telling him that Fox News Channel, both online and on, on air, is turning Franco Harris into this great conservative uh, hero. This reminded me, because this has happened so many times in the five-plus years now that I've been on this nightmare uh, of trying to get to the truth and spread the truth about what really didn't did not happen in the so-called Penn State scandal. It reminds me of a great story uh, involving Franco that uh, I didn't tell last week. I wanted to tell it last week, and I've, I've never told this story publicly for a couple of different reasons. And last week was so busy because we were doing three hours and two guests, and I kind of got sidetracked. And I'm never quite sure, you know, what I'm allowed to say uh, about things and, and what I'm not. But I, you know what? After this week, I, I think it's it's definitely worthy of telling this story because not only of what happened with Franco in that story and how greatly, you know, tremendously he reacted like a good sport uh, and how symbolic that is of, of everything else that he's done over the last five years, but also because yesterday there was a, a ridiculous news story involving Joe Paterno by CNN uh, that I will get to shortly that is just um, this entire case in a nutshell it's a complete farce a complete fraud the media is of course buying it totally but uh if there was one half hour of my life uh, maybe 45 minutes of my life in the last five years in in this whole penn state fiasco that uh was the most influential in so many different ways it was definitely the weekend after i interviewed jerry sandusky the first time in prison so I interviewed him for three hours in prison, a half hour on the phone. And, you know, my whole my life was like in complete disarray because I'm, I'm having to rethink everything. I'm making a, a deal with the Today Show to do an interview with Matt Lauer to, to break the story of the interview and give them the audio clips. And, but I'm also thinking, wait a minute, this this whole story no longer makes any sense to me because Sandusky's not appearing to be anything like what I expected in any way, shape, or form. And, um, and I'm on the phone with his wife, Dottie. And uh, at this point, I barely know Dottie at all. And I'm telling Dottie, because I, I know this because I have it all recorded, because, not because I even intended to record it, but because I was recording Jerry's phone call from the prison earlier that day, and my phone was automatically recording everything that came in. And I was telling her, which is interesting in retrospect because of how much my perspective on the case has changed since this day back in 2013, early 2013. I was telling her what a great witness Jerry would have made had he testified at his own trial. And she's like, yeah, that's right, because he's innocent, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever, sure. Sure he is. Sure, right, well, delusional lady. And so uh, that's what I was thinking at the time. And then all of a sudden, the other line broke in. And I said, Dottie, can you hold on a second? And it's Scott Paterno, who is the son of Joe Paterno. And I'm like, Dottie, I got to take this call. So I, I get a call from Scott Paterno, who I never really liked. But at this point, I didn't have a horrible relationship with. He was Joe Paterno's lawyer during this whole fiasco, which was one of the many, 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 many parts of the perfect storm here because he was not qualified to do the job. But at this point, I was still giving Scott, and this is probably the biggest mistake I've made in this whole situation, is I gave far too many people way more benefit of the doubt than they deserved. And Scott was one of those I gave way too much benefit of the doubt. I'm thinking, 
he's he's a paterno. He's paterno's son. He can't be completely incompetent. He must have his dad's best interest at heart. And he gets on the phone and he wants to tell me that he has heard that I have interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison. Now, you know, because Scott needs to know, let everybody know that he's in the know. Like somebody had leaked him the information. I know exactly who did it. It had to be a board member at Penn State by the name of Anthony LeBron, who has been playing both sides of this whole situation since day one. So, okay, so he gets leaked the information that I had, had interviewed Jerry, and he is irate. I mean, he is he's as pissed off as you can possibly get. I mean, he's... These go to 11. He's at an 11. He's cursing at me. He's MFing me. Uh, every, every word you can think of. Because he will not allow the Paterno name to be associated with anything involving Jerry Sandusky having a platform uh, to spew uh, his garbage and he's a monster and he had his chance to speak at trial and all that stuff. And I'm like, Scott, first of all, you have no idea what you're talking about with regard to what my plans are for this thing. Because he didn't. He had no idea because I hadn't told anybody. You have no idea what he said, which was fascinating to me. My first thought was... You're the son of Joe Paterno. Jerry has never spoken about any of this before. And you're not remotely curious about what he said? Not even a little bit? I mean, you don't have to agree with it, but you're not even curious. Your dad's life was destroyed because of this. And you're not even remotely curious about what he said. Which told me a lot about the way Scott does things, which would fundamentally changed my view of how this whole thing went down later on, but I still haven't put all the pieces together. Anyway, long story short, Scott starts threatening me. Starts telling me, you know, uh, I'm going to tell Franco Harris that you made a joke about OJ Simpson killing his wife because she's white. And you know how uh, Franco feels about that type of thing. Cause you know, Franco's married to a white woman. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's not even remotely true. And I'm thinking you're either so dumb that you believe things that are absurd or you're a lying sack of crap because I know full well I never said anything like that. And so my head's spinning and Scott's saying, you know, Penn State Nation's going to not have anything to do with you after I get done and and I'm not going to let anything ever be said negative about Mike McQuarrie, who was the big witness in this case. And I'm like, what? If you don't let anything negative, whether it's true or not, said about Mike McQuarrie, who destroyed your father's legacy. This thing's over. So I'm getting all this information in an incredibly short period of time. The phone call is like 18 minutes long. And my head is just ready to explode on so many different levels. But Scott eventually hangs up on me. And I realize, okay, this is going to be a freaking disaster. This whole thing is going to blow up. Uh, I'm going to have to call Franco because Franco's very close to Sue Paterno. Uh, Joe Paterno's widow. In fact, they visited uh, Joe Paterno's statue together just before the statue was taken down. I'm going to have to uh, tell Franco to throw me under the bus, and that's going to break up that whole relationship. And at this point, Franco and I, Franco and I, don't know each other that well. We've met like maybe four or five times. He was the star of my documentary film, The Framing of Joe Paterno. You know, we we had a good relationship, but there was it wasn't like bonded in in steel. Uh, as it might have been, you know, a few years later after being through the wars together. So immediately I get off the phone with Scott after he hangs up and I call Franco Harris. And I'm like, Franco, I got some bad news. He goes, what's that? He goes, um, I just got off the phone with Scott Paterno and he is irate and he's going to publicly trash me. 
And I understand your relationship with Sue Paterno and the Paterno family. I totally get it. And I want you to know that you can throw me under the bus and I'm not going to have any ill will at all about it. I totally, and, he, and he interrupts me. He says, John, 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 I am independent. You do what you need to do to get to the truth. And he wouldn't let me even talk about it again. Here I am, a freaking nobody he barely knows. I'm going to get trashed, he knows, by the family of the guy who he's supporting. There's nothing in it for him at all. He's a legend, and he's telling me, don't worry about it. You do what you need to do. And I'm like, wow. Holy cow. It's the only moment in this five-year nightmare where anybody has ever exceeded my expectations <laughs> in their behavior. Interestingly, a year later, when I was about to go on the Today Show with Dottie Sandusky to do a second interview with Matt Lauer and declare that I felt that strongly that Jerry was innocent, I gave Franco a second opportunity <laughs> to throw me under the bus. And he was offended. He was completely offended. Because I thought, this is really going to be super toxic. There's no way you're going to want to have anything to do with me. John, no, we're good. Everything's good. So Franco was good with the hilarity that occurred because of the podcast interview. And uh, he's an amazing guy. Uh, No one's perfect. But uh, as far as celebrities go, you're not going to find one better uh, than Franco Harris. Now, as far as the news story that occurred this weekend, uh, yesterday it broke. Uh, I need to address this because I've become so associated with this story. And I, I, it is exhausting. It is exhausting to try to combat the tidal wave of media bullcrap that gets spewed on this case. But what happened yesterday really set a a new standard for bullcrap, which I didn't think was possible. In case you missed it. It certainly was possible with all the hurricane coverage that you missed it, but it got a lot of play. The story from CNN was exclusive. New police report indicates Joe Paterno knew of Jerry Sandusky's abuse before the infamous 2001 Mike McQuarrie episode came to his attention. And that this somehow was proof of a cover-up. And that Joe Paterno was a fraud and that he was the reason why Jerry was allowed to get away with these crimes for so long and that everything that's been said about him is warranted and justified and he should be damned for all time. That's the subtext of all this. Now, it's important to point out that part of the reason why the article got so much play is one, because it's catnip for the media. They love, you know, anything that rips on Joe Paterno. Let's be clear why, why anti-Joe Paterno stories play so well? Because he's a celebrity. People think they are, even though he's dead. That's actually part of why it's so great for the media. They know no one can fight back because he's dead. He's a celebrity. Everyone thinks they know the basics of the story, so there's no explaining needed. 
And everything that makes Joe Paterno look bad makes people, dregs of humanity, average human beings, feel better about themselves. Because, hey, I might not have won the most games in college football and been a legend, but at least I didn't cover up for a pedophile for however many years. So I'm better than Joe Paterno. That's very that's a very pleasing story to a lot of people. Interestingly, it's the most pleasing to people who are bad people because bad people love to feel like someone else is worse than they are. But I digress. But it's important to point out that the person who wrote the story, this is a large part of also why the story went viral, is a woman by the name of Sarah Ganim. Sarah Ganim is the one who won the Pulitzer Prize for allegedly breaking this story way back in 2011. Now, there's two ways to look at Sarah Ganim. You tell me which is more realistic. The media version of Sarah Ganim is at the age of 23, (laughs) this Penn State grad, this female Penn State grad, (laughs) fresh out of college at a small, tiny little newspaper, is a journalistic savant who single-handedly breaks open the biggest scandal In the history of college sports, maybe the biggest scandal in the history of American universities, a scandal that, depending on which version you believe, had been going on for decades, and she, single-handedly, bursts it open. Yet, oddly, she never writes a book about this. Hmm. Okay, that doesn't prove anything in and of itself, but that's a little odd, isn't it? You, you win the Pulitzer Prize in a story of this magnitude. You're the one that broke it open. You don't write a book about it. Instead, you take a job with CNN. Now, this journalistic savant, since taking a job with CNN several years ago, in fact, I, I had a very, very brief battle with her on CNN on the old Piers Morgan show. You can check that out on YouTube after she lied to me and said that she was never even considering coming on the show with me. And then all of a sudden, there she pops up in an ambush, which tells you a lot about her character. But the reality here is, since going to CNN, she has been known for two things. I'm not making this up. Two things at CNN she's known for. Getting a snowball thrown at her while covering a snowfall and getting caught laughing on air while doing a bit with Wolf Blitzer talking about a horrendous torture-slash-assault case. And that went viral. So the two, her two contributions, this journalistic savant, is being hit by a snowball and laughing about torture live on the air. Those are the two things that she's done. But anything that's Penn State, she's considered Woodward and Bernstein. When in reality, she's actually the Rolling Stone reporter who botched the UVA rape case. And I'm not, that's not a, um, a haphazard comparison. They're the same people. In fact, they have both, before the Rolling Stone UVA controversy happened, they had both been complimentary of each other on social media. They're cut from the same cloth. But the media is so dumb, so invested, so lazy... They don't even bother to read the story. Everyone just looks at the headline and it's copy and paste, copy and paste. And in worse than copy and paste, the headline actually gets worse as it gets 
down the food chain. The original CNN headline was actually okay. It said Joe Paterno may have known of Jerry Sandusky abuse before 2001. By the time USA Today got to it, it's like Joe Paterno damn right knew, bastard. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but that's effectively what it was. Well, if you actually read the story and you know anything, anything about this case, you don't need to know what I know, which is more than anybody on the planet. Just anything, you learn very quickly that this story is not just bullcrap. This is, it should get her fired immediately bullcrap. Because the basis of this story is that Joe Paterno was apparently, this is from someone else's testimony, probably Mike McQueary's, that Joe Paterno had said, according to a police report, that when Mike McQueary came to him and said, I saw Jerry Sandusky in a shower back in 2001, that he had heard of a prior episode involving Jerry Sandusky. Now, if you know nothing about the case, you think, oh, my God, that's two episodes. How could he not have immediately called the police and gotten Jerry Sandusky arrested? Well, here's why. What Sarah Ganim didn't tell you in the story is that we already knew this. We already knew exactly what Joe Paterno knew because why? Well, he had alluded to it vaguely in his testimony before he died and in interviews before he died. Why was it vague? Because he wasn't asked about it for 13 years. And he was 85 years old. (laughs) And he's a very, very busy guy. So what really happened was this. In 1998... Jerry Sandusky picked up a boy in a shower to wash shampoo off of his hair. The DA, no friend of Penn State, investigated it fully, declared it, quote-unquote, officially unfounded, and rightfully so, because there was not a hint of evidence at all of any sort of sexual abuse, and nothing ever happened. No charges were brought. There was no suspension. Nothing, because nothing happened. And so... In the real world, here's what occurs. Paterno has in his memory bank in 2001, when McQuarrie comes to him, oh, wait a minute, didn't we go through this before? Jerry, a boy, a shower, Jerry's an idiot. He's retired now, he's a moron, he does stupid things. Oh, boy, let's, let's make sure we tell him to stop this because he's, he's, he's being a moron. That's... The way Paterno almost certainly responded. And by the way, if you use your brain, this story not only exculp- is exculpatory towards Joe Paterno, because he thinks that when McQuarrie McCre- comes to him, that we've already gone through this rodeo before. We did this rodeo in 98 and it was nothing. So I'm going to pass this up to the athletic director and the head of the campus police and make sure they take care of it, which is exactly what he was supposed to do legally as well as morally, but it also is exculpatory to Jerry Sandusky. Why? Because if Paterno is connecting in his brain when McQuarrie comes to him in 2001 to the 1998 episode where there was nothing, guess what that means in a logical world? It means McQuarrie didn't tell him crap because otherwise Paterno would not have associated it with an event 
that was nothing. It further proves that all McQuarrie said to Paterno was, yeah, I saw Jerry in a shower with a boy. And that's why Joe Paterno connected it to this prior episode from three years earlier. And just so you know, people always say, oh, but in between, Jerry Sadusky retired. Wasn't that a forced retirement because of that episode? Uh, No, because Louis Free, of all people, the guy who did the absurd and discredited free report that was paid for by the Penn State Board of Trustees to justify their firing of Joe Paterno, he found notes. He found notes from Joe Paterno prior to that 1998 episode where Paterno and Sandusky are discussing his retirement. Because Jerry was tired of coaching football. He wanted to devote his life to his charity. Boy, that worked out well. And Paterno wasn't particularly happy with the way the defense was going, but he still let Sandusky coach for two more years, which is not what you do if you think you have a pedophile on your staff. That's what you do if you're easing out somebody who you've worked with for 30 years and who was very well known and respected. So if you use your freaking brains, people, this story is not just a nothing burger. It's actually the opposite. It actually goes to my version of the story. And it's also not new. If Sarah Ganneman had attended the Graham Spanier trial, which I did and which Franco Harris did, she would have known that the former athletic director at Penn State already testified to this. He testified. He said Joe knew about the 1998 episode because he was asked about a specific email that had been greatly controversial as to whether or not it was referencing Joe Paterno. Well, he said, yeah, which again, in the context of the whole story, not only makes sense, but is also exculpatory. But the most amazing part of this whole thing, which nobody other than me mentioned, is that Sarah Ganim, a year and a half ago, breathlessly reported that she had found a 1971 accuser who got paid a couple of nickels from Penn State who had claimed that he had told Joe Paterno he was abused by Jerry Zanusky, which is so just it's just flat out ridiculous on so many levels it's insane i mean the story itself is absurd i'm not gonna bother you with the the details but it's laughable the story is laughable and ganham came forward with oh the 1971 accuser interestingly she did a videotaped interview with that accuser a guy who i know who it is and there's not a chance in the world he's telling the truth she videotaped an interview with that guy yet never aired the videotape Now, as anybody knows anything about media, that's a giant red flag. You tape a video, you do a video with somebody who's a a witness who's never spoken publicly, and you don't air that video, there's a reason why you're not airing that video, because there's a big problem. But so she vouched for the 1971 story. Interestingly, she didn't vouch for it until there was political cover to do so, because other stories were coming out from... 1976, which was somewhat similar. But here's my point. Pick a lane, Sarah. Your story from yesterday cannot be true if the 1971 story is true. It cannot be. They're completely incompatible with one another. They're totally different narratives. So which is it? Did you buy into a lie in 1971? Let me 
Spoiler alert. Yeah, she did. She bought into a total lie. And interestingly, her source on that just happened to die last week. So it's possible that she might be a little bit nervous that that accuser, who I now believe is going to be far more free to potentially recant his story because the guy who put him up to him is dead. So she's effectively saying, yeah, that, that thing I broke a year and a half ago, that was bullshit. That was total bullshit. Paterno didn't know about anything in 1971. No, no, no. He knew something much closer to 2001. But I'm not going to even tell you what it was, which is really, this is where the media malpractice comes in because it's not like Sarah Ganim doesn't know that we're talking about, or Paterno was referencing 1998. You know why I know she knows it was 1998? Not only does everybody who knows anything about this case know this, the mother of the 1998 accuser, while the investigation was going nowhere, got a text message from a reporter telling her, you know, um, authorities are probably going to drop the case soon if there's not more accusers. And shockingly, shockingly, they found three more accusers who had relationships with her son. Hmm. Boy, that's a sure just a coincidence. They were all, by the way, photographed together in Jerry Sandusky's book because that's what pedophiles do. They put group photos of their victims in their book entitled Touched. But guess who that reporter was? The reporter was Sarah Ganim. Sarah Ganim, Pulitzer Prize winner, effectively pimping for the prosecution, getting the mom of victim six to find more accusers. This was stipulated to at Jerry Sandusky's trial by the prosecution, which tells you how bad it must have been because they didn't want the jury to actually see the text messages. I emailed every single member of Sarah Ganim's Pulitzer Prize jury telling them about this stipulation. Not one of them even responded. I mean, it's a blatant, pure violation of journalistic ethics. Not to mention that she got the whole story wrong. But it's a fairy tale now. It's a complete fairy tale. And the media will not even remotely accept any other version. They are five-year-olds with Santa Claus. Sarah Ganim claims in her story that she reached out to Dottie Sandusky's lawyers for comment. Dottie has no knowledge of that whatsoever. Is it possible that Ganim sent an email on a Friday night to one of the lawyers? I guess so. But there was no effort made to actually get a response. Then a newspaper, at an, uh, also in State College area, the Center Daily Times, they reached out to Dottie yesterday and said, if you'd like to make comment, we'd love to have you. So Dottie texts me and tells me this, and I write for her the following response. The statement to give to the newspaper after they requested it. The response with the statement was this. To my knowledge, we were not contacted by Sarah Ganim for a response. If we had been, I would have told her that this is old news, which actually exonerates both Joe and Jerry. The incident in question is the 1998 episode, which according to Tim Curley's testimony, Joe knew was fully investigated by the DA and was determined to be unfounded. I never said that Jerry doesn't like girls and the factual record, including a trial, makes that extremely obvious to anyone not invested in this entire fairy tale. 
On the bright side, I'm glad to see that Sarah and the rest of the news media has seemingly dropped the absurd notion that Joe Paterno was told in the 1970s about abuse that never happened by accusers who made up stories for Penn State money. That was a statement that Dottie Sandusky sent to the newspaper, the Senate Daily Times, which requested it. As of this moment, there is no evidence whatsoever they used it in any shape or form or fashion. That's what lying bastards these people are. That's how invested they are in one particular side of the narrative. And that's why the truth will never win in this case. There are still lots of people who think that the truth has the same magic that the truth used to have, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. The truth doesn't have that magic anymore in general, and it certainly doesn't have it in this, in this particular story. Because everybody on the other side, everyone in control, the political forces, the media forces, the abuse rights act, act, uh, activists, all those people, they are completely and totally invested in a myth and they will not allow the truth to come out in any way, shape, or form. And folks, it's not close. That's the most important thing you need to understand. I would not have devoted my life to this thing to the extent that I have over the last five years over reasonable doubt or something that just had, I had questions about. No, 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 no. This didn't happen. None of this happened. At all. It's the greatest injustice not involving a direct murder that I've ever heard of in American history. There's that many people who have been unfairly harmed and the truth has been that badly lost. There's still a lot of people who are fighting the other side. We keep thinking every any day now. Still, I mean, we still have conversations, some of us, with major media about doing the other side of the story. And yet, invariably, something like this always comes up to trip us up. I'm not a conspiracy person, but there's some people who think that that's on purpose, that this was a desperate attempt by Sarah Gannam to maintain her narrative because there are efforts on the other side. The Washington Post is about to come out with a rather extensive article showing somewhat the other side of this particular story, focusing a lot on Franco Harris, by the way. So anyway, I, I needed to get that off my chest, let you know... Uh, for those of you who still care about this story, and I know a lot of people do, what actually did happen, why it's a bunch of baloney. And, you know, when people ask me, why am I still doing this? It's mostly because I care about the truth and I'm the only one that has the truth. I know that sounds ridiculous. It sounds absurd. It sounds delusional, but it's the truth. In fact, this is going to sound really bizarre and funny, and I mean it half jokingly. The only evidence I've found that I might be wrong, I know I'm not. But the only evidence I've found that I might be wrong is that I have not been assassinated. Because if I, get a, if I die, the, story, the real story of this thing has no chance of ever being told. I don't think it has much of a chance as it is. But if I die, it's totally, it, it all dies with me. So I'm not, in, not, not inviting anybody to do that. But I'm, you, know, you know why I don't think there's been an attempt made on my life? is because I actually think most of the other side is so stupid that they actually believe it. It's not like they know that they have been duped or that they have been perpetrating a massive lie and an injustice. In fact, that's part of the glue that keeps this case together. Everybody on the other side wrongly thinks that they're the crusaders for justice, which is laughable and absurd and incredibly frustrating. All right, en enough of that for this week. Uh, but make sure, if you, if you haven't already, check out the interview with Franco Harris in hour number three of last week's uh, podcast on uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. 
Uh, before we get to Trump, a couple words about Hurricane uh, Irma. Now, um, at the, as of this podcast, which is Sunday afternoon, it appears, hopefully, thankfully, that Hurricane Irma is not going to be uh, what it was forecast to be. It hit Florida as a, a, a Category 3 hurricane, and it's lost the back end uh, of a lot uh, of its force because it hit Cuba pretty hard. Now, this, of course, is good. Nobody was rooting for Florida to get destroyed. But I do find it uh, interesting and important that this is not uncommon, that when these storms are gathering, the media has an inherent conflict of interest. Gee, do we tell people this is going to be the worst thing that's ever happened? In which case, we get people to watch what we're doing. Or are we more measured? And there's absolutely zero cost. There's nothing at all keeping the media from overhyping any of these storms. Because there's an inherent fallback position. Well, thank goodness we were wrong. And, uh, and we were just trying to make sure that everybody was safe. Right? So no one can ever get in trouble for overhyping one of these storms. The only way you get in trouble is if at the last minute the storm strengthens, is way worse than people expected, no one evacuates, and people get killed. So inherently, you're always going to have authorities, politicians, and weather people side on the perspective of this is going to be catastrophic. And what and part of what led into that narrative here, of course, was we're coming off of Harvey. So the global warming climate change people are like, oh, my God, this is it. Proof. We've been waiting for this for years. We've been telling you there's going to be increased hurricane activity with increased intensity. And we just had this horrendous Harvey. And now right on top of it is Irma. And it's going to be the biggest hurricane of all time. That's part of it. So there's a political motivation. There's a ratings motivation. There's a safety motivation. And then there's also uh, the size phenomenon. People are so enamored with size. And I don't pretend to be an expert, but it doesn't, I don't think, take a weather expert to understand that the size of a hurricane doesn't really matter that much. Irma was massive, still is massive, as far as the amount of space that it takes up. But that's not what causes massive hurricane damage. It's the intensity, not the size. And large, in a large number of time, and it's not uncommon for a super large hurricane to the, end up breaking up because in order to keep that much size moving like a hurricane takes a ridiculous amount of force and it can't run into anything. So, again, we don't know what the final outcome for Florida is going to be, but as of right now, it certainly looks a lot better than it did a day ago. But, of course, I'm sure this is still going to be evidence of climate change, global warming, to those who want it to be, even though there's no logic nor evidence to back that up. All right, now on to Donald Trump. Uh, I wrote a column this week about Trump deciding supposedly to end DACA, the uh, so-called benefits for dreamers, the children of illegal immigrants, and what I referred to as his DACA debacle. 
And you can find that at freespeechbroadcasting.com. This was one of two major situations this week where, in my view, whether he intends to or not, Donald Trump was doing the work of Democrats. Now, with DACA, it's a little bit more complicated than it was with the debt ceiling and the, the Harvey relief bill, which was just flat out a deal with Democrats. But with DACA, and one of the things I go through at the end of the column is there are basically four major scenarios here. There could be other things that have occurred, but there's four major scenarios as to how this will play out politically. And I don't see any one of them harming Democrats, and I see three of the four greatly benefiting Democrats. And the major reason for this is that he's putting a six-month delay on this alleged end of DACA, and he's also signaling, like any really good negotiator does... Yeah, the art of the deal. More like the art of the squeal. Uh, The reality is that Trump is a horrible negotiator because he's already made it very clear he's bluffing. It couldn't have been more obvious that he's bluffing. He's already tweeted that if Congress doesn't fix DACA in six months, that he'll revisit it. What does that mean? That means that there's really no impotence on Congress to do anything if they don't want to because Trump's going to wimp out. Trump's not going to end DACA. He's, it's not in his DNA. He's not that confrontational. He doesn't believe in it. We have statements from him, including very dramatically in 2012, supporting DACA. What, you, what his fans don't understand, because they don't want to, is that his immigration stance during the campaign, was all a charade. It was all just a way of duping the same people who bought into his birther bullshit. That's what this was about. Because he knew that that was the easiest issue for him to differentiate himself from the 15, 16 other Republican candidates because the other 15 or 16 candidates knew that if they took a super strong stance on illegal immigration, that they could never win the presidency. Boy, how'd that turn out? So so Trump had nothing to lose. He decided to just take Ann Coulter's book and appeal to that segment, knowing that in a field with that many candidates, all he needed to gain traction was about 15, 25% of the vote. And at first, that's all he had. But then he uses that as leverage to get all this media coverage, which increases his vote, which puts him in the center of the stage during the Republican debates, makes him the center of attention. He's totally different than everybody else because he's telling everyone to go screw themselves. Everyone loves it. No one can has the balls to take him on because they think he's going to fall apart on his own and they don't want to offend his voters. And it's the perfect storm. But it's not because Trump actually believes in it. Trump has absolutely... No interest, no interest in doing 90% of the things that he said about illegal immigration. There's been no deportation forces that he promised, even against the so-called bad guys. There's not been one brick of his great, beautiful wall that's been built. I know that Trumpsters will tell you, oh, illegal immigration is down. That's only because Mexicans are hesitant to come for a short period of time. It's not because of anything he did. You think that's going to change long term? No, he's done nothing, nothing to fundamentally change the illegal immigration problem in this country. I know. I live in Southern California. And 
as far and nothing has changed here at all. Nothing. And as far as this notion that somehow dreamers are going to get deported, give me a break. There is no way the media won't let that happen. There's, it's just not Trump. It doesn't have the balls to do it, especially here in Southern California. The children of illegal immigrants are treated better in many ways than citizens are. That's not hyperbole. That's a fact. And you know why? I know it. I've witnessed it. Until recently, my wife was teaching at a school with a huge percentage of children of illegal immigrants and probably illegal, some illegal immigrants themselves. I have witnessed this firsthand. It was one of the scariest things I've ever seen. I thought I was going to view a concentration camp for future Democrats. I'm telling you, this is what you see when you go. You see almost every kid is Hispanic, which I don't care. I couldn't care less about their race, but it's politically relevant. They're in uniforms paid for by the taxpayer. They line up for their free breakfast and their free lunch every single day. All of them. All of them. Because there's a, once you reach a certain percentage of people eligible for the free lunch and breakfast program, it's free for everybody. So no one even has to apply. No one has to do anything. It's just free. Not only is it free, and this really blows my mind, everyone gets a color calendar at the beginning of the school year telling them what their very nice meal is going to be for breakfast and lunch every single day of the school year so that they can plan. This calendar alone had to cost tens of thousands of dollars to make sure. Now, I was amazed it was in English. I'm like, I'm imagining that somewhere there must have been an argument as to whether or not to put the calendar in English or in Spanish. Soon, I'm sure it will be in Spanish. And and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Not only do they, they, they get free everything, they actually get instructed how to use government programs to get more free stuff. I'm not exaggerating. I'm telling you this is the way it is. They, they, they are educating these kids, one, not only how to milk the system, but two, they're educating them for a lifetime. That there's an expectation that the government will provide everything for them. They're, literally, their clothes, their food, their health care, their education, everything, and instruct them how to make sure they get everything that they are entitled to or maybe even aren't entitled to. And a lot of these kids either aren't citizens themselves or are children of illegal immigrants, and it is embedded in the way of life. There's no extracting it now. In my column, I referenced the illegal immigration issue to kind of like abortion for conservatives. We lost. We just haven't admitted it yet. All right? It's never going to change because we keep going in the other direction and the demographics keep working against us. Once Prop 187 here in California was passed and then eviscerated by the liberal courts in the late 1990s, it was over. And for those of you saying, but John, John, Trump just got elected as Mr. Anti-Immigration. Doesn't that show 
that there's still hope? Actually, it's the exception that proves the rule. Because, one, he lost the popular vote by 3 million votes against the most horrendous candidate in modern American history, Hillary Clinton, but also because he's done nothing. Because even he getting elected with Republican majorities in the House and the Senate as his signature issue has done squat nothing. So if even Trump is going to do nothing on this issue, there's no hope of ever going back on this. It's not going to happen. So to me, the DACA situation is much ado about nothing from a policy standpoint, but politically, because of the six-month delay, it's a gift to Democrats. Because if he were to get rid of DACA, which I don't think he will, in the middle of an election year, six months from now, that's horrible for Republicans. And the only way he decides not to get rid of DACA, or the most primary way he gets, decides not to get, I'm sorry, <laughs> the most likely other scenario is that Congress passes something super liberal, which he then signs, which is actually worse than what Obama did with DACA, because then it's law. (laughs) So Trump campaigns promising to end the executive order of DACA, Obama's allegedly illegal executive order, and effectively there's a very good chance he's going to make it law with no concessions in return. Why no concessions? Because he's already said he's bluffing. You can't negotiate that way, especially when you have no leverage, especially when you got a 35% national approval rating and a small majority in the House and the Senate who don't trust you, and for good reason. So as I play out the scenarios, and again, you can check them out at that column I wrote about the DACA debacle at freespeechbroadcasting.com, I don't see how Democrats lose here. And the most likely scenarios all involve Democrats winning. Not that Trump cares, because Trump only wanted a way out for him. He had a problem. He made a promise he never intended to keep, never thought he was going to get elected, and he wants out. So he wants to be able to pretend that he ended DACA, but he doesn't really want to end it. Because it's too painful, it takes too much balls, which he doesn't really have, and he'll get criticized too much for it. He doesn't like being criticized, and he doesn't really believe in it. Now, as far as the debt ceiling and the Harvey relief situation, I'm looking forward to speaking with Congressman John Yarmouth, my good friend, the Democrat, who's the ranking member on the Budget Committee in hour number two of the, of the podcast to get more details on that. But that was the Schwarzenegger moment. That was the moment which I've been predicting since way before Trump ever got elected. And I, it was, of all the things that frustrated the hell out of me with my former co-host Leah Brandon on the old nationally syndicated Sunday night show was considering the fact that we went through the Schwarzenegger disaster together here in California before she moved to Alabama, how she never accepted, understood, and realized the significance of the Schwarzenegger precedent. Because Schwarzenegger and Trump are cut from the same cloth, although Trump is actually even less principled than Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger, I think, actually at one point somewhat sort of believed what he said. He just got you know, into the fire and it was too hot for him. And he realized he had two choices, go down as a disgrace as a Republican, or he could turn into a Democrat, get reelected and declare victory. And that's what he did. And I have said time and time again, that's what Trump is going to do. 
He'll try it as a Republican for a short period of time. He'll run into uh, a brick wall. And then when it suits his purposes, he's going to flip. Because, you know, I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. There you go. So now he's a Democrat because he made a deal with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And the conservative media just sat on their hands and go, well, you know, we don't blame him. It's those Republican cucks that forced him to make a deal with the people we've been telling you are the devil for the last two decades or more. It's just so absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. It, it, it's, it's sad. It's sad what has become of the conservative media. But this is right out of the Schwarzenegger playbook in every possible way. Where it goes from here, I'm not 100% sure. That's why I want to talk with Congressman Yarmouth in hour number two, uh, which we will do uh, shortly. A couple other things in this first hour of the podcast. I also wrote a column for Labor Day, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about Amazon and the impact that Amazon is having on the workforce. And it's an interesting column. It's worth checking out. But what was most... <laughs> Most uh, fascinating to me was, you know, I was taking on Amazon pretty hard, even though my wife loves Amazon. I mean, my my wife loves Amazon way more than she loves me. It's not close. She would probably be the first to acknowledge that. Amazon makes her life a heck of a lot better than I make her life. I'm not kidding. So I write this column, and what was really the the most noteworthy element of it was I got immediately contacted by some corporate hack at Amazon wanting to speak to me, some corporate communications guy wanting to speak to me. Now, to me, this was like the ultimate proof that I was onto something, right? Right? Because if, if my theory is that Amazon is this, this ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing that eventually is going to take over the world and then screw us all when they have no competition, well, if that's really their theory, their philosophy, their plan, then you would be very concerned about that narrative taking hold, right? So you would stamp that narrative out the moment you saw any semblance of it, even if it was a, a column by a nobody on Mediate.com. Well, that's exactly what Amazon did. So they basically, in my mind, proved, oh, so I'm right. <laughs> Because if I was wrong, you wouldn't give a crap about me. And we had an interesting conversation for about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. He sent me a bunch of bull crap about how wonderful Amazon is, how they're not really impacting jobs. And when I asked him, so what's the purpose of the company? He actually said to me with apparently a straight face. I was on the phone, so I couldn't see him, but I didn't discern any overt laughter. He actually said, we are a customer service company. Our, Our job is to is to make sure that the customer is taken care of and the customer is serviced. I said, oh, really? (laughs) So you're just doing this out of the goodness of your heart. You just want to make people happy. That's wonderful. Yeah. So what happens when Amazon puts everybody else out of business, has no competition, and there's nothing keeping you from raising your prices? He didn't have a very good answer for that, but check out my column if you're interested in the topic at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I wrote another column which is probably more entertaining about a radio talk show host who got arrested on federal charges involving a pyramid scheme this week. Now you're probably wondering, well, John, why is that relevant? Why do I care? There are scumbags in all industries. Well, there's more, 
there are more scumbags who are prominent in talk radio than any other uh, industry of its type that I'm aware of. And that's because I've lived in it for most of the last 20, 25 years. But this guy in particular, I had a, a very um, telling interaction with. His name is Craig Carton. And he currently, although he's off the job right now, is a sports talk show host at the biggest sports station in New York City. He also does a TV show that simulcasts the radio show with former NFL great Boomer Esiason. Craig Carton and I briefly worked together in uh, Philadelphia, my hometown of Philadelphia. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. At the WIP radio, sports radio in Philadelphia. I was doing sports radio after uh, being fired from a bunch of jobs and regular talk radio. And uh, it was before I went back into to general political talk. And the way that we did things at WIP was that there were the regulars and then there was a group of people that were just basically plugged in wherever needed. Craig was one of those guys, although he was ahead of me on the depth chart. So I normally would end up getting an overnight shift. And it was a slow news period. And it was like one or two o'clock in the morning. And I got a call waking me up from Craig Carton, this guy who got arrested this week on this massive pyramid scheme, which apparently he, he was using to try to pay off millions of dollars in gambling debts. And when I heard about the story, I don't know if he's guilty, but it didn't surprise me at all. Based, and you'll understand why based upon this story. So he calls me at one or two o'clock in the morning. This is in the year 2000. And he says, John, I need you to come in to fill out the rest of my shift. I said, well, why? What's going on? He says, my wife is about to give birth. I'm like, oh my gosh. Right? I mean, someone tells you their wife is about to give birth. That's a big deal. Super emergency. I rush to get clothes on. I speed into the studio. I don't live that close to the studio. I get there, and he's not as frazzled as I would have expected him to be, considering the circumstances, but I don't know him that well. So I'm like, okay, whatever. So I take over the rest of the shift. I'm not prepared to do a show, but hey, look, I'm I'm happy to help a guy out, take one for the team, what have you. Turns out his wife did not give birth. Turns out it was very clear his wife was never going to give birth that night. And the the further proof of this was not just that she didn't give birth for several days. I don't know how long it was exactly, but it wasn't even close to that night. I got a call from the boss the next day. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. This is the nature of the talk radio industry, how corrupt it is. So this guy, Tom Bigby, who at the time was... uh, a literally and figuratively a huge presence in both the sports talk radio business and the political talk radio business. One of the worst human beings I've ever encountered in my life. A horrible, horrible person. When David Foster Wallace did his famous 23-page cover story on me for Atlantic Monthly Magazine, I actually referenced in there that if God gave me one person I could kill for free, it would be Tom Bigby. That's how much I despise the guy. So Bigby calls me up, which he almost never did, and, uh, and he says, John, what were you doing filling in for Craig last night? And I said, um, Tom, he called me and told me his wife was giving birth. Uh, I, I had no other choice. He says, you're an idiot. No one should ever believe Craig Carton about anything. He literally blamed me for trusting a guy who he would end up help making a talk radio star, not just in sports, but in politics, too, because he had a... Craig Carton played a key role in Chris Christie becoming the governor of New Jersey. But th- this is the nature of this crappy industry. 
I'm the bad guy for being stupid enough to believe someone in talk radio when they tell me that their wife is giving birth at 1 a.m. and I'm supposed to come in to fill in for them. If that doesn't tell you about the nature of the talk radio business, I don't know what does. But hopefully, Craig, if Craig Carton is guilty, I hope they throw the damn book at him and I hope that he suffers greatly because he is a horrible, horrible person who is emblematic of just how horrendous this business is of talk radio and, ha- and, and frankly, how we ended up getting Donald Trump. Because that's, that's who the stars are in this business. They are bad people, low-grade people. And also, incidentally, Carton, not, not a coincidence, Carton was one of the worst offenders when it came to lying about Joe Paterno and the Penn State scandal. Because, frankly, my guess is he didn't know any better because he doesn't care about the truth. And because as a bad person, see, the, it's the bad people that virtue signal. When you see someone going out of their way to virtue signal in the media, it probably means they're a bad person and they are insecure about who they are as a person. And so therefore, they're trying to prove how great they are as a person by knocking down a Joe Paterno with no facts. And he was the worst. In fact, there's a clip of him in the beginning of my movie, the framing of Joe Paterno. So good riddance, Craig Carton. I hope hope you suffer greatly. Uh, one last thing. This is a weird weekend for me every year. I know it is for a lot of people because tomorrow is 9-11. Obviously, the 9-11 anniversary to anyone, you know, over the age of, say, 25 is a, is a big deal. Uh, it is for me for a couple of other reasons. Uh, one, I did my first movie about 9-11 or about a movie in, involving 9-11 called the Blocking the Path to 9-11. I also met my wife publicly on 9-11 because she was a guest on my radio show on KFI in Los Angeles on 9-11. September 8th is my deceased mother's birthday. And September 9th is the day that she died in a car accident uh, 23 years ago. So this, there's a lot of anniversary date stuff going on this weekend. But I, I did want to at least mention 9-11 because, you know, and maybe it's just me. Partially because of the hurricane, partially because it's the 16th anniversary, partially because it's on a Monday. This year's 9-11 anniversary feels to me like the first year that it's in the history books. That it's no longer really part of our current experience, that it is in the past. I, I, and I had a similar, I've had a similar experience a couple of times. I remember going into the Reagan Library uh, soon after Barack Obama was elected. And I've always felt, because, you know, Reagan was my first major political hero. I was 13 in 1980. So I've always, you know, even though Reagan was dead for a long time, I've always felt like he was part of the current narrative. Like that, that Reagan was still relevant in today's world. And as I was watching the clips and, and seeing the things that he said, and I realized, wow, Reagan's in the history books now. It's no longer relevant. He's no longer relevant today. This is not the same world, not the same country that he lived in. On a much lighter note, you know, the golf world is experiencing the same thing with Tiger Woods. He's never officially retired, but Tiger's history now. Tiger's from a completely different era, totally different players, different equipment, He's never coming back. No one wants to admit that. 
because it's not good for business. But Tiger Woods is now in the history books. Well, I feel this year, and I'll probably write a column about this tomorrow, that 9-11 is also in the history books. And that, that to me is sad because, you know, part of what that cha- the challenge of that day was that we would never forget that we would become a much more serious country because we would want to make sure that it would never happen again. Well, we have forgotten, and Donald Trump's election proves forever and ever, we're not a serious country. We are not even remotely a serious country. Even if you're somehow a fan of his, the idea that we elected Donald Trump, who, by the way, on the, on the day of 9-11, was, a, was bragging about how the loss of the Twin Towers made his Trump Tower one of the tallest buildings in New York and did that on television, and somehow that never became a major campaign issue, which is mind-blowing. The fact that we elected Donald Trump as president pretty much proves we're not a serious country and that 9-11 is now forever part of history and no longer part of our current experience. All right. Uh, make sure you listen to uh, hour number two for our interview with Democratic Congressman John Yarmuth on some of the things that we already discussed in hour number one. Uh, I always forget to do this. If you're interested in more in, uh, information on the whole so-called Penn State scandal, my website there is framingpaterno.com. That's framingpaterno.com. And as always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, if you enjoy this podcast, make sure you share it on social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you, because that's the only way people will know about it. And number two, do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, make sure you pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.